0: Hello and welcome. My name is Robin Marriott of Property EU, and I'm delighted to be hosting the second edition of the Urban Land Institute's Vanguard podcast series. Now as you know the ULI brings together real estate and land use experts with a clear mission to shape the world via the built environment and transform or impact neighbourhoods, cities and communities. And this podcast series focuses on that future and that transformative impact. Now, the ULI's Young Leaders Group recently selected 10 outstanding young professionals already making waves in the built environment, and they've called them the new real estate vanguard. And I'm delighted to welcome one of them today, Ross Bailey, CEO and founder of Appear Here. Ross, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Now, we could um, start anywhere, I guess, but why don't we at least explain to those that don't know Appear Here what the business is and what... What does it provide in the market that didn't exist before? Well, I mean, the business is simple. The way of thinking it, of it in
1: the in, in the simplest term is sort of like Airbnb for retail. So you go on, there are thousands of stores around the world that you can book by the day, week or month. And you literally put in your credit card, you pay online, you sign online. And, and we try to make it, you know, as easy as booking a hotel room. Uh, and, and when we started, I mean, when you say like, what's the problem? When we started, there was not a single website in the world where there was a shop or commercial real estate with a price you know it was all very hidden it was very opaque it was about there being no transparency Uh, there was no standardization so the standard licenses and stuff that we built um, had never been signed online before we couldn't find any sort of like references of commercial agreements like that being signed online in, in retail um so there were a lot of those things that in terms of how do you give people access and how do you give them transparency that that didn't exist before but the biggest thing for me was that just renting a shop sort of sucked and it was built for uh, businesses of a certain scale and it was all about um there being a lot of friction and we sort of just thought you know what would it be like if we could make this suck less and that's that's how we came up with the business and the idea.
0: Right, right. Now, to me, having come from a sort of a real estate journalism background, this sounds like um, a nightmare for landlords, you know, this is exactly what they wouldn't want. Uh, what they want are uh, sort of long leases, right? Um, upward only rent reviews after a certain number of years, yeah. and it's all very tight. And then you've got the lovely legal documents around it. Now, what you've come up with sounds like an absolute nightmare for them. It's a disruptor. So I'm just wondering, when you got going, uh, what was the reception of of landlords for for, for starters? Um, a lot of landlords
1: um, disliked the idea, and I think that, you know, in many ways, what we were always doing is going going back to that first set of principles of like why does something exist that way so why are there long-term leases and long-term leases were there for a certain reason because there wasn't the internet and there wasn't technology and a, a, a tenant and a, or a, a, an entrepreneur needed that space and didn't need you know they wanted a commitment on the flip side the way that capital works and and how Debt works in commercial real estate and how valuations work and why that long-term lease is really important. But that long-term lease is some kind of security of income, right? And in lots of other industries, there is much shorter term, much fle- more flexibility, whether it be hotels or, or elsewhere. And because there is enough volume, because there's enough data, you can still get that you know, relatively security of income. So I think that what we were doing is trying to go, look, because it's been done one way doesn't mean the outcome um, can't be the same if it's done another way uh, and and my view really is that you know lease lengths have been declining every year since the year I was born um, re- in many ways sort of that sort of retail of the past that refuses to change has disappeared and this new kind of retail this sort of resilient retail whether it's small entrepreneurs or whether it's e-commerce businesses or whether it's digitally native brands they're all launching offline. They're all doing things differently, and they're finding that they need a model that works for them in that world, uh, and and that's what we're trying to bridge. and 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 lots of really forward thinking landlords sort of see it that way. And it's funny actually that I always think um, Bista Village, which is always named as like the most successful, yeah, you know, one of the most successful malls in the world and highest. Um, sales per square foot and all this stuff and you'll sit with landlords and they'll say okay well they've done this and it might be to do with the trees they've put outside or they've done this and they've done this and what they sort of forget often is that Bista Village has no long-term leases if someone's not good enough they move them on and they have a certain level of control they're sort of the editors of creating an amazing environment and therefore often a lot of the stuff has to be high quality they have to keep with the times if not they'll move on and actually that gives the landlord a relatively interesting piece of control so I think that there's clear uh, examples of where flexibility
0: not only drives income but drives some of the most successful destinations in the world so that's the landlord piece now what about i hesitate to, to use the word retailer piece because i've i think i've heard elsewhere that you don't even like the the, the name retail you can explain a little bit about that too but what does the, what does the platform that you have provide for for the retailer
1: yeah no, no it's not that i don't i don't like the the word retail so i think that what you what we all do with things is we put things in boxes right so you know you've, you're a retailer and then someone that would be like oh they're leisure or they're f and b and they're and they're all these sort of words that i don't find very inspiring and i think they 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 dehumanize um the person and they also separate from what they're actually doing and i think for me what we represent is entrepreneurs, we represent people that are coming up with ideas, we represent creatives, we represent people that want to connect. So if you're in an office or if you're in a home, um, the one thing about commercial real estate or especially retail is it's the one um, piece of real estate where you go to connect to people, you go where strangers will walk in, right? And that doesn't happen in your home really and it doesn't happen in an office. So for me, whether you're uh, selling something, whether you're an artist, whether you're um a coffee shop whether you're a restaurant what you're doing is creating something where you want to show people um, you want them to participate and you want to be introduced to strangers and i think if you think that way you also allow things to intertwine so you know a great store might have a small little restaurant at the top or there might be a beautiful shop with a coffee store or there might be a gallery that's showcasing stuff that has some kind of immersive experience that also sells product so i think that um you know the more we put people in boxes the more we try and make them out to be like what already exists and i think that's maybe why we've got quite a cookie cutter homogenous high street today
0: yes yes it's, um, a, it's a great point
1: to answer your question of why does it work for the tenant um what we're trying to do is give people access help them participate and make it more accessible than ever before so historically you need that 10-year lease now you can go on a appear here and you can book a shop for the week so that really means that you know we've got people that have started beauticians or uh, beauty shops and nail bars that have literally booked a shop for a week or a month and now they've been there for four years because they've been able to afford it um, or we've got amazing luxury brands like Gucci or um, Louis Vuitton who have launched stores of us in areas they might not have gone to so they might be launching in Shoreditch or Brooklyn or a cool off street in Berlin versus being on the Champs-Élysées or um, Bond Street or wherever else
0: yeah it's amazing listening listen to you because now, now you mentioned it the idea—it sounds so obvious, and yet it didn't seem to have existed before you guys set up, which is in itself is quite amazing. Um, you maybe um, actually chuckled to myself when you said you met landlords, and you said, "Well, of course they would ask where did you get your chartered Surveyors uh, degree from." <laughs> it's like, what what did you say to them? Because of course your background is uh, certainly not conventional, especially when it comes to the real estate industry. So, shall we talk a little bit about yourself and? you know, who you were as a teenager and how you even got into 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 business. Sure.
1: So, um, I was, I, I did, you know, I left school at 16, so I had no A-levels, um, so I couldn't really go to university. But I left school sort of on my own accord, like I was always fidgeting, I was always trying to find something to do. Um, you know, I, I came from a both sides, like a very working class family. My mum's from Jamaica, my dad's from East London. Um, you know, I watched my grandparents work multiple jobs and, and work very hard um, and my parents do the same. And I think I was I was fortunate that I watched my parents and um, my parents actually to sort of go back to it. They met in a little shop, in a little hair salon, um, in a little town just outside of London. And my dad was actually walking past the hair salon and spotted my mum in the window and got a job that weekend there sweeping the floors um, as sort of a. A Saturday boy, or whatever they call them, because he fancied my mum and wanted to take <laughs> on a day. Uh, and years later, he'd become a hairdresser um, like her just because he had tried uh, valiantly to get her to take, uh, for, for, for him to be able to take her out. And anyway, long story short, they end up falling in love, getting married, and they still work in that same small salon today. And I think I saw how, you know, a shop isn't just a, a shop, it isn't just somewhere to sell, it's somewhere where someone can create their livelihood they can be in control of their destiny they can fall in love they can um, create a life and and I think that what we realize our streets are you know incredibly democratic and for me they are places where anyone can participate and whether it's an immigrant or whether it's um, you know the local corner shop or the takeaway restaurant we've always seen that there's such diversity that comes from our streets and actually there were in many ways culture i think is created culture really does come from the streets and, and that's why we want to make it appear here possible for more people to participate um but my childhood so seeing my parents seeing them in that store understanding that I, I was very entrepreneurial i was always sort of like i don't know i remember i begged my parents for a dog for weeks and they said you can't have a dog and one day they came home there was like 12 in the garden They're like what the hell have you done um and me and my mates were created a little dog walking business um and to me business and those things was i guess a game it was you know i was bored and if you could get more friends involved in the next week it could be a bit bigger then that seemed like a lot of fun um and you know we ended up i ended up doing um under 18 nights where i'd rent nightclubs and we'd put on these nights of what we dreamed a night in london would be like and there'd be you know fire breathers and all these sort of things and um, apple juice with um fireworks on the top that would be sold as champagne so we do all this stuff and 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 there was a stage where it was going very very well and i was about 16 and we had seven eight hundred people turning up at these nights every week you know they were doing they were very successful and i sort of thought hang on i just want to do this i'm enjoying this i'm learning a ton and at school i'm sat there a little bit bored um so i'll go and do that and um that's what i did and then i moved to london at 16 and i i did that for a few years and then I got to about, I think I was 19 or 20, um, and I suddenly had this moment where I was like, oh God, all my friends are at university. I've made the biggest mistake. One, they're having a ton of fun. And two, you know, have I removed that optionality, right? It's no longer a choice. And I um, I went to an advertising school called School of Communication Arts, and they had just started. Um, it had existed, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. And Sir John Hegarty and graham think who did the levi's ad, all these incredible um creatives had gone there and they had banded back together to create it again so there were no teachers you were only taught by people in advertising and it was for once you'd been to university so in my head i was like well this looks fun and if i get in then you know I in my head i was like i've skipped university and these guys have all been there so it make me feel better and fortunately i got in and it was an incredible experience i mean the guy who ran runs it is a Creative genius called Mark Lewis, who's nuts, and would, you know, come in in a Segway every day with a bulldog running behind him. Every day he wears sort of multicolored trousers, and he'd start off the day by shouting out loud, "We sell or we die." Um, and it was just the most bizarre experience. I mean, on my first day of school, he gave us each I think it was ten quid, and he said, "Go find your desk." And you know, one kid's bringing a sofa that they found off the road. Someone else has bought, you know, managed to haggle, you know. I don't know like an old door that they've turned into a desk and it was just like an absolute mess but one of the most creative and incredible experiences and what you learned there was how it all comes down to the customer how it's all about insight how it's all about positioning and how do you um get people to see your view in a different way but also the thought process of if someone says left why isn't it right
0: yeah. Well, everything you described, of course, is not exactly conventional, right? Um, but I guess this is this is what happens um, in the background of someone that, g- that does become an entrepreneur. Now, did you not also go to uh, a business school that was founded by Peter Jones, a very well-known entrepreneur in the UK? Is that true? And yeah. what was that experience? How did that come about even? And yeah, what was so that experience I went, so, like?
1: Um, I had done, I, I just moved to London and uh, my auntie saw in the newspaper a little advert and they were like look we think you're a bit like that so why didn't you go and I turned up and there were loads of kids at Peter Jones's office and there were tons there and then they sort of did like an X Factor elimination and by the end of the day there were 20 of us left Um, and we lived in a hotel for six months and we got taught by entrepreneurs Peter Jones told us there was this amazing guy that came in several times called uh, Mike Clare who founded dreams beds used to turn up to teach us in a Rolls-Royce with the number plate dreams which used (laughs) to make me laugh and it was all about doing stuff and doing things practically um and it was it was very competitive um but again it was it was very unique and what i noticed a lot of some of them seemed pretty some seemed really smart some seemed not so smart but all of them seemed uh ambitious all of them had energy had just energy and all of them seemed like they, they you know they they would just go for it they didn't mind if they looked stupid and actually they didn't seem that much on the pedestal they didn't seem that different to me or anyone else or my family they just seemed like um you know they believed it was possible and i think that was one of the biggest things i walked away from i just went well actually it just seems like if you work you know my pet family and people work yeah you know, i think my the work ethic comes from what i watch my grandparents and my aunties and uncles and my family do they're incredibly hard working But there's often a view that well those people are a little bit different and actually when i met them i went i don't think they are um and i think that was one of the most amazing experiences coming out of peter jones wasn't just the learnings it was the access to individuals where you went oh we're all pretty similar Um, and in the end you know the more people you meet in life you realize we're all the same
0: yes now if i asked you if you had three ideas before breakfast today you'll probably know why i'm asking that question because i believe it's linked directly to how you actually came upon the idea of appear here so can you tell us a little bit about yeah, about that side of things a bit
1: but being honest like I, mm. I don't think it's sort of it did
0: but i i didn't realize this until
1: quite recently so when i was at the ad school um the guy that would stand up at the school every day and say we sell or we die and this ridiculously <laughs> creative amazing man yeah. um, uh, mark would he he came up i mean one day he sat with me and he went um You know, I remember he did different things. One day day he sat with one of us and he went, "Okay, listen, you're going to go to the ballet this weekend. Because it was just like, there's no chance you'd go to the ballet. So you're going to go to the ballet, you're going to sit and you're going to watch and you're going to absorb everyone. And then one week he said to me, you're going to go to Tesco's for Saturday. That's your homework. And I want you to, there was an app called Foursquare at the time where you could log into your location. So he's like, I want you to log into Foursquare every hour and I want you to sit in Tesco's for five hours. And I was like, oh my God. And the first hour, you're gonna sit there and you're gonna watch people come in. And I want you to put them into groups of people. And the second hour, you're gonna follow those different groups around constantly, just subtly watching what they put in their basket. The third hour, you're gonna guess. And the fourth hour, you're gonna see them, put them in a group, guess what they're gonna buy, follow them and see if it's true. Um, And it was all to do with, you know, spotting different groups of people. You know, what does the single man, buy versus the dad that comes in with kids versus the mum, who spends longer looking at the prices, who buys own brand versus who goes straight for whatever else. How are their shopping habits? So he was very interesting how he'd set things like that. And one day he said to me, okay, Ross, you're gonna come up with three ideas before breakfast. And every morning, if you don't come up with the idea, you can't get out of bed. And um, you know, for the first week, you're like, this is great and it's quite easy and you've got lots of ideas. But after about a week, you realize you have no ideas and there's nothing in your mind. And um, I'm one of those people that probably got like a little bit of OCD. So when I've said I'm going to do something, I find it incredibly painful if I don't. So when he was like, look, you know, three ideas for Rex, and then one morning I struggled. I'm like lying there trying to come up with them. And then what happens is every day as you walk around, you start to have this insane curiosity, right? Like you're looking at the street and you're watching someone cross it and you go, okay, what if there was this idea? And you stop having a filter because you're like, I just got to get out of bed tomorrow, right? So you just come (laughs) up with ideas. And it just happened to be that one of the days the idea was uh, a marketplace for empty shops. And, you know, I'd probably read about Airbnb that day. I probably walked down the street with a ton of empty shops and just went, OK, that's my idea tomorrow and didn't think much of it. But on my phone every day, I would write the three ideas as a note. So uh, long story short, but I think it's interesting because, you know, you connect the dots looking back, not as you move forward. I never knew that I came up with a peer here Then, as far as I was concerned, that's not when I came up with a pair here. So I, I came up with a peer towards the end of the school year, and then it was the summer of 2012, and I launched a shop for the Queen's Diamond Jubilee in Soho. And I designed Pitch the Queen with David Bowie stripes on, and the, the t-shirts actually got banned by Buckingham Palace, but that's a whole nother <laughs> podcast. Um, and the, the idea was, as I did it, I was like, oh my God, I set up an online shop so easily. That was, that was great, but nobody bought on the online shop. And then setting up the offline store took forever, was really difficult, really hard, really you know, just crap. And um, and then when I launched it, suddenly loads of people were buying stuff. But not just that, the online store people were buying things from, um, even not in London. And I suddenly was like, oh my God, there's something intrinsic with doing something offline online. And back then, you know, this is 10 years ago now, um, the idea of the awful word like omnichannel, the way that these things are connected, wasn't really the case. It was very much online versus offline and, and one will exist and one won't. And I sort of, as a young guy, bought on technology, was like, yeah, it would all be about online. And then was like, well, nothing's selling. And then I loved being in the street, right? You know, it was the best summer ever, summer of 2012. It was boiling weather, much like it is now. We had the Olympics, we had the Jubilee, we had all this stuff going on. And there was this amazing optimism in the world, I think. You know, Obama was president. Um, you know, David Cameron now, retrospective didn't seem so bad. Um, and, um, you know, it was great being out there so that was sort of where the I thought the idea came from and and I guess years and years later I you know you look back and I was on my notes and I was looking for something and there was a note there from before that date and it was in the free ideas for breakfast and I was like oh wow so that must have stuck there it must have been in the back of your head and and gone and then you go well why did I pick that one out of hundreds Um, and I think it's because you know whether it's my parents and their little shop and seeing the impact that had on them or whether it was renting night because I used to rent empty nightclubs and turn into things so I think when you look back you notice that um often things connect more than you realize
0: wow what a story so there you are you've you've obviously had the idea things have come together and now it's time it's really time to establish this business appear here can you describe to, to the listeners what were your experiences of of setting up a company and getting it to grow I had to go and figure it out so I had to go and research, you know,
1: what the capital structures, why these things are in place. And really, I sort of found it like this just intellectually stimulating question, which was like, you know, why is this the way it is? And I, I spent over a year just understanding everything to do with real estate, or trying to at least. Um, and then it was in 2000. And then, and then I spent probably a year trying to raise money. And it was 2014, I managed to get some seed funding um, and sort of took the idea seriously. And we launched the website at the end of 2014. And by 2019, so five years later, we had offices in London, Paris, and New York. Um, we had 250,000 brands, retailers, entrepreneurs on the platform. Um, we'd raised, I know, 30 something million pounds. And you know, we'd launched shops for everyone from Kanye West to, to Gucci to um, Supreme and amazing streetwear brands to tens of thousands of you know, butchers and bakers and, and candlestick makers and, and in many ways a contrarian view of what everyone had said was um dying you know we, we could never have enough space and then um 2020 um we raised a round that you know i think valued the business at nine figures uh, and within five days our revenues dropped 95 percent oh covid, COVID oh no
0: Yes, of course. Uh, before we get to that, which must have been pretty traumatic and so frustrating because you have probably had a very good run up until that point. You talked about the, the investors that came in. Now, some of the investors, as I understand it, are actually very well known in the real estate community. There's a company, for example, called Mark. It used to be called Mayer Bergman, but changed their name to Mark as they rebranded. Um, I think it just might be interesting to people. Uh, I think it's on your website and quite public can you just talk about the investors that you managed to attract and what that process was like
1: yeah we went and we got you know big venture capitalists and big investors here in technology um some of the biggest vcs in europe invested um and then my view was we wanted to get real strategics like people that were really interesting got it and, and marcus at my bergman um He's a lovely guy. is is someone who was one of our early investors. Um, David Simon and Simon Property Group, so you know the biggest retail landlords in the world, um, invested. Um, and then we had people like Fifth Wall and, and um, Dan um, von Furstenberg and Natalie Massenet, who are in the fashion industry. So we found like you know we went who is you know who's one of the best people who gets e-commerce? Natalie Massenet, who's one of the, you know, who's like the queen of New York when we were opening up New York. It was D- Diane, and 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 then who are some of the biggest real estate people who give you an insight. Um, And and some of that was really helpful when it was going up. Actually, people like Simon Property Group and stuff like that was so interesting in the middle of the pandemic because you had really interesting people who you were on the phone with, who would give you a view, you know, a few phone calls and you'd have someone, you know, biggest landlord in New York, who's got real estate all over, sort of biggest landlord in the US, well, the world um, in retail, and would give you a real insight of what they were seeing. And and, and you'd see that from different places, um, which was interesting to see, you know, do you think, the way your are thinking is making sense or not.
0: So, let's now talk about the dreaded C word, COVID. Things It sounds like things were going really well, pretty much one trajectory, and then this thing happened. Tell us about What was the moment that you realised, actually, this is really bad news? How bad did it get? How did you cope, perhaps more importantly? And perhaps take us through to what the business looks like nowadays.
1: Well, <laughs> I'm a little bit, a small hypercontract, but I'm also, I like, like, I'm used to looking at data with the business. And um, in January, actually, I was in France and in our Paris office and COVID was just sort of bubbling away, just starting. And I was, I had set up a dashboard that with one of, with the guy who ran our Paris office, which showed COVID cases in every country and how they were growing. And I was like, this is looking worrying because this has been... It was sort of doubling or tripling every week but when it's like you know i don't know 10 cases to 30 cases whatever it might be people sort of don't go and actually it was smaller numbers than that but, but they were doubling and in obviously asia it looked like it was going crazy but in europe it wasn't too bad and then by february i was meant to go to paris fashion week and i went i'm not going because these numbers are looking a bit crazy and also because i'm a bit of a hypochondriac and i was like i just yeah i don't want to catch this thing <laughs> um <laughs> And you know, Paris Fashion Week happened and as Paris Week Fashion Week kicked off, um, we watched what was happening in Milan and Italy uh, and that didn't look good at all. And my view was, you know, I think we all felt that that was gonna very quickly obviously come over here. Um, so I think it was a really funny place because in one sense, I was like, see, I, I thought this, look, like, look at the data. Like, humans aren't very good at exponential growth. So when you see something going up like that and it's small numbers, we can't predict that actually in just six weeks, that means, you know, potentially millions. Um, You sort of see, we're not very good at our brains, I don't think, of understanding that. And you were seeing these charts going up and going, if this was revenue lines, right, and I show this to an investor right now, they would be riding every cheque right thinking your growth's phenomenal and this is a potentially at the time we didn't we know now it's not but at the time it was like and this is potentially a really deadly disease right there were arguments that it was 10 percent mortality and all this sort of stuff so it was really concerning but i guess when you know so we felt let's close this round quickly we fortunately closed it. it hit our bank account the night before the stock market had its biggest crash since 2008 um and I think at that point my view was okay. This is scary, but it will, you know, be a few months. Yes, I remember
0: that like, the stock market crashed like thirty percent. I think something like that. Something crazy, right? Yeah. And
1: you and you sort of like look, um, this whole th- what's what the hell's going on? This is this seems crazy, but it was so unprecedented that I think that you know, at that point you're just like, oh, it's here. And then what did happen straight after that is, every day when you go back to that period, I'm sure anyone, especially who was running a company or I don't know politics or anything realised that every day it felt like a week or a month. So, you know, we would wake up one day and we'd be like, okay, New York looks great. Let's focus on what we're doing with France. And we, how do we get people out? How do we shut the offices? What are we doing there? The UK was looking okay. And then within that evening, we were shutting down New York and flying people back to London and whatever else. And your view at the beginning of the week was like, you know, maybe we've got a month. The beginning by day two, it was like, we've got 48 hours, to get every office shut. So we went from raising around and doing, I mean, we did an all hands the night before I think the stock market went down. And I think of 30 questions from our global teams, I think maybe one question was on what do you think about COVID? Just one. Yeah. And seven days later, seven days, we had shut down every single office and we were working remote. I mean, so now when you think about that, you think that is how quick it happened. And that was probably about 10 days before the UK shut. Um, so we shut a bit early and you know me and all of my executives had covid so we suddenly then were shut down with covid and we had it pretty badly um and i think at that point when it was looking quite scary um, and we were all in lockdown and the prime minister was ill and all those things i think suddenly we were like oh my god what is going on here and you would go you know i'd walk down the street and some places were doing takeaway coffee and i mean people in their 20s that i was sort of like oh they'll be fine they were scared and they were not wanting to touch you. And you were like avoiding people on the streets in the middle of London. And then suddenly you're like, well, what's this gonna do to us as humans fundamentally? Like, you know, a theater, a cinema, am I gonna wanna sit in a room with a, a hundred other human beings breathing all over me when you were looking at humans going they, I mean, you, you we sort of laugh now, but like, I remember watching Netflix and two people would touch the same door handle and you'd sort of have a shudder, you know? I mean, it was, or they'd kiss on telly, you'd be like, so what's so amazing is, I mean, it's a great lesson to all of us, right, is that when you're in something, no matter how great it feels or how horrific it feels, either way, when it's a fleeting moment in time, you cannot let that lead your decision making, because the truth is, is what exists for a thousand years will probably probably exist for a thousand years going forward and, and those behaviours. and you know, in one way we were questioning all of that. And in the other way we were going, well, hang on a minute, in 1920, there was a global pandemic that killed nearly 10% of the world's population. And within years, everyone was dancing and having the time of their life. Um, So it's crazy that there were moments where, you know, the consensus was, if you watch the news and you watched amazing people speaking, uh, an amazing business analyst was like, what was this going to do fundamentally to our futures? Uh, And now here we are two years later and the world couldn't be more normal. Um, in, in some ways, right, in terms of that idea of connection, I just got back from Glastonbury uh, and you would never have thought there even had have been a pandemic. Everyone was probably closer than they'd ever been. And as of January to now, the business has grown, you know, 500% plus or whatever, like ridiculous. We're, the UK business is now bigger than it was before COVID, uh, with actually a much smaller, more efficient team. Um, the demand is so crazy at the moment that we've had to shut our phone lines down and take them off the website. So that's a, that's annoying, but it's a good problem to have, I guess, versus the opposite. Uh, and we're building back, and you know, back to what we just said a minute ago about, you know, I think your view as an entrepreneur or as anyone, has to be to ignore the highs and ignore the lows. And when you win an award or someone tells you you're fantastic, you can't believe it. Um, and when someone tells you that, you know, I had I remember I had an awful moment where an investor sat with me. And they said look if you hit this this and this and you hit these margins we'll we'll invest in you at the end of covid if you survive and we survived we grew it back we hit the margins and they went look the problem is ross you've hit, not hit your numbers for the last 18 months i was like yeah we were in a pandemic <laughs> um and, and again you've got to ignore that as well because you know for whatever reasons they said it and, and um that was their reasoning at that moment and but at the same time you've got to ignore them when 18 months before they told you the best ever. so i think you've got to stay coarse and I think that my biggest learning for me going through Covid is when I did you know luckily we didn't pivot the business and and stuff like that but there were points where I was like well will we ever come back as humans in the same way and the truth is I think things bounce back very quickly Uh, they come back much quicker than expected and humans are resilient.
0: I like the way you interpret the events Um, you know it's optimism is not quite the the right words you'll probably come up with it to describe yourself but um hearing you speak and meeting you for the first time today it does remind me of something that i saw and i think it's your linkedin page and it came from someone that was probably i don't know one of the teachers at one of the uh, places that you you studied at who said ross is one of those rare talents who seems much wiser than his years I don't know if you remember that comment. It's on the LinkedIn page. But just ask you a, a, a sort of a personal question. Do you? You're just into your thirties, aren't you?
1: I just turned thirty. Just
0: yeah. turned thirty. So, do you see yourself as much wiser than your years? Do you think that's got anything to do with uh, the, the the success that you've you've had today in the direction you're travelling, or do you think that that's actually kind of nothing to do with it?
1: I mean, most of my friends think I'm like Larry David, so I don't know what that says. Um, <laughs> but I am, um, you know, I I think I probably flip between both. I'm like either a big child that just is very playful and wants to have fun, um, or I. probably a little bit serious what I always do is trying to think about what are the big decisions I have to make and do I get eight right out of ten and I'm gonna get some wrong but trying to focus on those big calls and I think that um, and often questioning when you are young and you are naive and you don't know anything I think you often question and go well why is this a certain way or what's the data or what's the evidence or is there anything to back up my thinking
0: yeah i mean what you're talking about is absolutely fundamental to the real estate industry so i think the listeners will be um you know really sort of digging into what you're saying there and
1: and real estate is i mean it's an it's in the most amazing industry we're literally building cities we're building cities and streets and we're doing that stuff and you get often that you know you look at some of the most creative people that you meet they never want to be in real estate they're going to fashion, they're going to media, they're going to advertising. They want to be in all these industries, no one to be in real estate. Why? Because it's like a load of people that look often like they're from the same schools. And they talk about asset value the whole time. And they don't talk about value creation. No other place. You don't sit in a, you know, a meeting with an amazing fashion house and hear them talk about... You know, Obviously, they talk about numbers. Obviously, everything comes back to that. But they don't, as they're designing the collection, that they think is culturally relevant. Say, okay, we need to get this from this many sales to this many they go from what are they creating how's it going to connect to people and then the intrinsic value will mean we have a better um more successful business and you look at you know lvmh is you know fundamentally i mean it's run by a banker right but you look at lvmh you look at the obsession with craft you look at when i've gone into that organization and and so much collaboration uh, and bringing in you know someone like virgil abloh um, to run Vuitton and being the first to really do that and um, making pretty bold decisions and you go you know collaborating with different industries and artists and architects and you go wow this is really interesting and i think what we often do in real estate is we are quite secretive we don't like collaboration and we find it sort of the way i describe it's like like an ego burn like you know you sit with a i had a meeting not very long ago with I think it, I, I don't remember the name now but they bought a team into our office we're like hey we just want to like run this by you we just want to get your thoughts they wanted critique and they might have walked out of that room and gone that was a load of crap we don't care but they wanted it um, one of the most amazing women I know is a woman called Faye McLeod who runs the creative studio for Vuitton um, and, and Dior and she does all of the visuals and the merchandising and the windows and, and I mean she's got the most creative incredible studio and when I hear her talking to people whether it be top person at Apple or a top person at Facebook or a top artist or you know her catching up when I've caught up with her and and literally sharing ideas I never get this sense that by disagreeing or seeing something differently that you're somehow uh, affecting her view and in real estate you literally will sit with someone and they will call you in and say we want to know what you think we should do to this retail arcade and you'll have a view and they will be fuming (laughs) and they'll be so angry at you and they'll be like how dare you tell us how you think it should be done and you're just like okay i don't know you know i'm probably maybe i'm wrong i don't know but i think we need to build an industry where you bring different people in you know um our streets aren't a load of people that went to Reading and loughborough and wherever else they're people that are from every walk of life and uh i think if we bought diversity and it should be the most." you know amazing industry you're literally building the built world why do why does everyone want to go and write code or be part of this you look at mark zuckerberg in january talking about the metaverse and i just think that's what sort of hellhole is that that i don't want to live in um i think we should we need like yeah incredible vision in this industry incredible young people incredible diversity and have enough skin to go like you know if you have a good view of what you want let's hear so many opinions they can only be good
0: yeah that's the everything that you've talked about is just a fundamentally important look we want to help people listening so just as we come towards the end of our time together ross um classic podcast question is there anything that you would have done differently looking back now sort of the the 10-15 years um, into your into your business journey, and then also the ULI always loves to know: Are there any podcasts or books that you've been listening to or read lately that you found particularly interesting and could be useful to other people?
1: I would spend a lot less time caring about people's opinions. I mean, in one way it's so important, right? Reputation's everything, but I think you have to get into a place that often people's views of you or views of each other are based on whatever's going on with them you know we all live separate realities and again you know if you say to someone this is how i think of something uh, if you say that to someone who's pretty secure of what they're doing they feel great they might love that and they you know one person who i'm you know super close with and we always share ideas is um thomas heatherwick and he's just such a visionary and if i sit with him and he, he's sort of critiquing my thing or i'm critiquing him we sort of seem to love it you can do that with someone else and they might go well you're arrogant and um, I don't like and I think before I would really care about that stuff and I think that in the end um, and the same with a team right if you're building a culture to actually build a great culture you've got to build something that some for some people to love it some people are gonna hate it and if you build an organization organization where people stick with you for five six seven years uh, and they create their best work that's a good culture and at the same time if some people join within three four months this isn't for them it's probably a good culture whereas if not it's probably a little bit vanilla uh, and it's not going to be the best place for some other others, you know a family, a relationship, a hotel, um, so many things, the thing that someone loves is it, not going to be everyone else. If not, you end up with you know Hilton. Um, and I think that um so I think it's it's about that and but then also making sure that morally you stick with you know people's opinions of you and what you do are very different to what your actual values are. And I think if you have your values and you make sure you stick with them and if someone follows up and they go, but why do you think that? And someone's able to tell a horrific story, then, you know, you've got to care about your reputation. But if they're not able to say that and it's just an opinion, then I think you just got to ignore it and move on. It's the same as what I said before, you know, ignore the highs, ignore the lows and, and stay on your path. Um, so I think that you know, I'm not going to go into what I would have done better and, and what I've done right because um, it's sort of too much. Self-intellectualize. I think I need <laughs> take too long, you know? um, but um, but I think that would be my bigger thing, and, and just to keep moving forward. You know, everything's possible, and um, and that's something that we always need to remind ourselves. Uh, and everything's changeable. You know, because you've been one way in the past doesn't mean you can be a different way going forward. Um, and that's whether you're a creative, whether you're an entrepreneur, or whether you're running a real estate fund. Like we've all got the ability to seek more opinions and and make bolder calls um and in terms of what i love reading i think a good book i read recently was good to great it was really interesting for me going through a moment of crisis at would appear here but also witnessing a lot of industries go through new moment of crisis and you see some i mean one company in uk real estate i i haven't spent a huge amount of time with them recently but um everything i'm reading and, and what i'm hearing you know someone like land securities actually seems like they're just you know, there's some bets they're making that I'm looking at and I'm, like, I'm not so sure. There's others I'm looking at and I'm going, oh, that seems really smart. But they seem like they're making like bold bets and they seem like where they're coming from seem thought through. And to me, that's exciting. Whereas there's a lot of others which just feel like they're uh, you know, making um, the same decisions maybe the other team would have made five years ago. And in this book, it's really interesting because there's something about vision and then there's something about what happens with a lot of companies is the moment there's crisis a new team's brought in and the new team does the opposite of what the old team did. And then they don't work and the new team comes in and they do the opposite and you end up just in this circle of doing what the you know, one removed team before did. Um, and you can see that playing out and you can see the people that go, well, this isn't what we're doing so we'll do it that way versus the people going, this is the way the world's changing. And here's a series of bets we're gonna make. And actually sometimes the bolder you're gonna have some big fails, but you're also gonna have some or one that works out. And the other book I really enjoy is this amazing guy called Jeremy Rifkin. He talks about, um, you know, the climate crisis and what needs to be done and how the world needs to be rewired to, to suit it and how an industrial revolution happens when energy, communication and transportation collide. And it was the first time I've heard something which was optimistic, where it like felt so well thought through, but also optimistic of the world forward and actually how this is a challenge that we've got but how it could be it could solve so many other problems like unemployment and uh, wealth inequality and all these things and actually this could be a good thing for the future if we get it right and i think that the only way you change the world is with hope not despair so um the climate crisis is a big thing we've all got to solve and and that was a book and an amazing economist an amazing thought leader that pieced it together intellectually in a way that i felt gave me hope for tomorrow
0: two good tips there Ross, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. To find out more about the other episodes of this series, go to the Young Leaders page on the ULI Europe website.